You are listening to the Boss Business of Surgery Series podcast, episode 15. Today, I talk with AJ Copeland on rising the ranks of national surgery organizations through selfless leadership. Welcome to the show. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we need to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Bertrands. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. All right, welcome back. I have on the podcast today, one of my personal heroes. So Dr. AJ Copeland is a general surgeon. Um, She is a retired colonel um, in the army, and she was one of my very first attendings when I was a third year medical student. And I always knew I wanted to be a surgeon. I was fortunate enough to have her on as rotation, the very epitome of who I possibly could be. And of course, you know, as I work with her um, as an attending, she did not disappoint. Uh, Dr. Copeland has really been just a really strong example of all the things that are possible. She's a female surgeon. She's strong. She stands up for herself. I remember in conferences, she would stand up and say, pay attention if people weren't paying attention, which let me think that I could speak up too and really stand up for yourself. She was highly capable and also highly compassionate too, uh, has always been a strong advocate of leader and education and really, really being a good example about leadership. And that's what um, the focus of this podcast is, is how she evolved to be a very strong leader and being an advocate for the everyday surgeon um, because she has been so um, just focused on just balanced. Uh, I never really felt like she was above or below anyone. Um, Everyone felt well accepted and you know really part of the fold and she cared about every single person from medical student on to the, the highest general. So uh, I promised myself I wouldn't gush too much but I'm probably too late. Dr. Copeland, welcome to the Boss Podcast. How are you? I'm fine, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yes. And, you know, I also forgot to mention that you were a, quite an accomplished like national uh, squash player. Did you win a <laughs> national championship recently? I, I have. It's been, well, it's been a couple of years since I've been playing competitively with it, with COVID and so on. But uh, yes, yeah, squash is my passion. Uh, now, I know that you um, gained a lot of leadership opportunities through the Association of Women's Surgeons. Take me a little bit on your journey um, with the Association of Women's Surgeons. How did that start and, and what did you gain from it? So I joined the Association of Women's Surgeons, um, I think probably as a resident. Um, I'm a joiner. I, um, I've been a member of the AMA since I was a, uh, a student. Um, and uh, I saw the Association of Women's Surgeons. I said, oh, that's me. I'll join. Uh, of course, I'm FACS. And if they had an association of redheaded surgeons, I'd probably join that just because <laughs> that's just the way I am. I'm a joiner. I went to the, uh, the AWS has a, uh, a dinner every year at the college, the clinical Congress. The first year I went to that, just bought a ticket and I went and I just thought it was the single most amazing thing to walk into a room full of women surgeons. And that was just a, just an electrifying feeling for me to, I didn't know a soul when I went, when I went in, but I, you know, found uh, fellowship and camaraderie with the women there and had a, had a wonderful time. And I made a point of going every year thereafter. And they put out a call for uh, council members um, at some point. 
in, uh, I guess it was the early uh, 2000s. And uh, sort of on a lark, I said, I'll see if, you know, put my name in the hat, see if they, uh, if they need a council member. So, um, so I was accepted to be, to serve on the council. This is where I think the, the key to, if you want to be a leader, is that if you volunteer for something, then you need to contribute. I think we've all served as committee chairs and you know who the people on the committee are that are actually doing work and those who are just on the committee to put it on their CV or check that box or whatever. So um, my perspective and my, the lesson that I've learned um, through my leadership journey is that if you volunteer for something, uh, do what you say you're going to do, uh, put, your, put your hand up to volunteer and then, and then do it. Uh, so I was a productive member of the council. I served on a, uh, a chapter development committee. I chaired that. We uh, made a template for how to how to start a chapter for the AWS as we were first starting chapters uh, around the country. Um, and then I got uh, swept up into the the leadership position. After that, I was uh, selected for to be the treasurer, and then the um, the uh, vice president and the president elect. And I was finally the president in the year 2008, 2009, I believe that year. Um, and then stayed on as the, the immediate past president, the past president and so on. So I was on the council for a good uh, 10 years or so. And then the AWS has a, a governor position for the American College of Surgeons. And I was asked if I would like to, the, the governor is a three-year uh, renewable for uh, two terms position. And I was asked if I would like to do that. And I was like, okay, I'll do that. So I was the governor to the American College of Surgeons for the AWS for six years. And during that time, uh, again, I served on the Women in Surgery Committee. I worked on the Committee on Resident Education. Um, every time somebody said, well, would you like to do this and so, I said, sure. And I put my hand up and then I would, you know, put my head down, do the work for whatever it was that they wanted me to do. Um, so I was working on education. I was working on um, in member services and got a, a number of projects done um, in both those pillars of the college. I enjoyed it you know, tremendously. I think it's it's really uh, rewarding to kind of see the the gears grinding of the co you know the college at the volunteer level. There's a lot of things that get done. Uh, I think the governors actually do a lot of the work. There's a there's work groups and there's committees and there's a lot of there's a lot of good products that come out of the the governor at the governor's level. Um, and then uh, when I um, when I finished my governor's term. Um, the, uh, I was put up to be a, a regent of the college, which is um, kind of the board of directors. And um, I, uh, after the second time that I was nominated to be a regent, I was in 2020, I was selected to be a regent. So I had been uh, on the member of the, a member of the board of regents uh, for a little over a year now. What is the the time commitment of like, let's say a governor? So what would the time commitment be for the governor? And what would you advise someone who'd be interested in being a governor? How could they go about that? So there's two different ways to become a governor. You can become a governor through your uh, state or regional chapter mm -hmm. of the college. So most 
people live in an area that has a either like the we have our metropolitan Washington chapter here, or you may have your state chapter in Tennessee or wherever the, the most pe people live in a you know either a state or a regional area. Uh, <clears throat> so if you if you were an officer, for example, in that chapter, and then depending upon how many members in your chapter determines how many governors you're allotted. Mm -hmm. So you, you would have the opportunity to come up as a governor um, from your state or local uh, chapter. Um, and then the other way is through your organization. So the, the AWS in my case, but also, um, you know, SAGES or, um, you know, AAST or, you know, fill in the blank, any number of surgical organizations um, have, again, to, the number of governors is allotted based on the number of fellows that are members of that organization. So there are some 300 and something governors total um, that are uh, again, allotted across all those different um, organizations and regions. Uh, and that includes the international governors as well. What do the governors do? Do they meet um, in person or is it just at the clinical Congress or um, what is the, what is their typical role like? So the governors, each governor is assigned to at least one committee or work group um, and they're solicited for their uh, preferences for which those are. Some people are more interested in education. Some people are more interested in advocacy or quality or whatever, whatever their area of interest is. And then there how often those groups meet then would be determined by the chair of those committees or work groups. Um, with Zoom, um, some of those groups are very busy and they're meeting several, you know, several times um, in between the regular meetings. Most of the groups do have a in-person meeting at the Clinical Congress and or at the um, leadership and advocacy meeting, which is in the spring. When you were a governor, what were some of the things that you accomplished that you were proud of? What are some of the things that you as a governor can look back and say, ah, yeah, we did that. So one of the things I'm most proud of when I was um, on the committee for resident education, I chaired a committee to come up with a pamphlet that describes what a resident does for it. Uh, for a patient, right? A patient pamphlet to describe uh, what is a surgical resident. And uh, this was a highly iterative process. It was, I mean, it's a one page pamphlet um, that was one of the more agonizing things that I've ever done uh, just because it was just, we had to do it again and again and again. I had to get the lawyers involved and everybody had a different idea about what this should, what this should look like. But I thought, I think it's a, a very good product you can download it from the college webpage and print it out and give it to your patients. And actually, that's what we we do now. I I you know I put it in the uh, in the in the patients uh, folders as part of their um, experience for breast clinic now. So I mean, most of the patients that we have at Walter Reed are pretty savvy about what residents are. But in a lot of places, they you know there's some suspicion about residents, like what's a resident, what's what's all this is all about. So it sort of explains that it differentiates between you know what a medical student is and what a what a resident is, what a chief resident is, and uh, the patient's role um, in the and rights in you know in the medical education process, and uh, and I'm I'm very proud of that that particular product. As a regent, how has your role changed from being a governor to a regent? What's new about that? So the regents, there's only 24 regents. It's a very it's a very uh, small group of people. It's um, 
it's kind of like the board of directors, if you will, for the for the college. The um, when I was a governor, we were told that the role, the governor's role, was to serve as a conduit between the fellows and the board of regents. But so the regents are the are the board of directors, um, and working in concert with the executive director to basically oversee the college direction strategy. Uh, big picture um, initiatives and so on. Um, in this year, since again, the big year since I've been a uh, regent, um, one of the big projects that we did was we had to select a replacement for Dr. Hoyt, uh, which was Dr. Patricia Turner. So there was a regental committee um, that vetted all the applicants. There were several hundred applicants uh, for the position and then came down to three finalists. And then the regents, uh, the 24 of us met on Zoom and interviewed the three finalists and then came to a consensus about who we thought should be uh, selected. And then there were many other uh, things that we had to deal with over the, the course of the year. And a lot of people may not um, even understand what the American College of Surgeons does. So, you know, you have a resident and, you know, junior attendings and all, what would you tell them that the American College of Surgeons does for them? So the college is, as I like to say, that represents the house of surgery. So it's kind of the big tent for not just the general surgery and its specialties, but all of the surgical subspecialties as well. And the, the college has made a concerted effort in recent years to reach out to include, um, you know, specifically, you know, ENT, ophthalmology, um, uh, orthopedics, neurosurgery, and so on, urology. So representing the interests of surgeons um, from an advocacy standpoint on, we have a big um, arm that does uh, lobbying and represents the interests of surgeons on Capitol Hill. Uh, we have a PAC. Um, that I would urge all surgeons to contribute to uh, because that's uh, how we can uh, have our money where our mouth is very literally in representing surgeons' interests. Again, we, uh, we have, we're up against the other interests, which include the lawyers, the hospitals, the insurance companies, which are all very well-funded. But beyond that, the, the uh, college also has uh, a great deal of, uh, does work in quality. Uh, everybody knows what NISQIP is. That's what the, uh, and TQIP and all the other quality initiatives. It does education, uh, a lot of educational initiatives. Everybody knows ATLS, um, but it does a lot of other, uh, CSAP, but it does a lot of other um, educational initiatives for all levels, everything from medical students to, um, you know, CME for uh, established surgeons. And then there's a lot of things in, in member services for established surgeons as well. So there's a, there's a lot of things going on. The Clinical Congress is sort of the big educational showcase each year um, that has something, really something for everybody. There's uh, the, the didactic sessions tend to be focused more for general surgeons, but there's also things on ethics and philosophy and uh, education, basic sciences, and things like that. 
you know, it sounds like the American surgeon is trying to, to gather things like the orthopedic surgeon, urologist, and I've seen that reflected in the topics at the clinical Congress. Um, what is uh, the college's thought on, and I know, you know, we're not necessarily speaking for the college, but I know it's a bit of a challenge as everything kind of fractures off to where you have, you know, all these different societies, including, you know, sages and things like that. And do you feel like some of these um, multiple societies are taking away from the American College of Surgeons, or do you feel like they can work together? What is your take on on how the specialization and, and all these increased uh, societies are affecting the American College of Surgeons? Well, I think the again the the college should be the big tent for all these other organizations. I don't think they're 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 in competition. I think that um, none of these other organizations are big enough by themselves to have an effect, particularly in advocacy. Um, to be able to to make a difference on in you know lobbying and inadequacy efforts and you know for the subspecialists you know we've taken the the ophthalmologists for example have frequently have had issues with the optometrists wanting to take on things that should be uh, surgical turf and uh, the college has gone to bat for them very successfully and that's been um, that's been helpful. I think that's a great point too because I know that um, especially certainly in primary care, and then maybe in surgery as well, is the role of mid-levels, nurse practitioners and PAs. Um, and I, I do think that, you know, the more that we can stand behind the, the tent of the American College of Surgeons, the, the helpful, because we are, as you said, you know, up against the, you know, the hospital systems and the insurance companies um, and the lawyers and things like that too. Um, and I think that sometimes we can get a little focused on being just a surgeon and miss sometimes how, if we're not at the table, we're on the menu. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We don't need, you know, mid-levels doing plastic surgery procedures and things like that and not taking care of their complications. Realizing that um, we do have a, a system that's available for us and supporting them with the, the PACs and paying our dues and things like that and, and really standing behind the organization is something that's helpful. Um, and I think that you're really a great example of like how we could all uh, get involved about raising the hand and going on the committees and doing some of the work. If someone is interested in doing leadership it sounds like, I think you've already kind of mostly said what to do, which is basically just raise your hand. <laughs> and really it's interesting because I think a lot of times people don't necessarily see themselves um, as a leader. Who would you, or how would you advise someone who's like, well, I'm not sure exactly if I am capable of doing any of this. What would you give advice to someone who's like, I'm not sure if I should be doing any of this. What would you advise them? If you are interested in something, and particularly if you see something that you think should be done better. That's a perfect opportunity to volunteer. You know, if it's something that interests you and you you're looking at it thinking, well, I could do that better, or or even if you don't think it could be done better, but you it interests you and you would like to participate, I think either one of those would be a good entree into into a volunteer opportunity. I can tell you that, you know, just by example too, I already knew the answer to this question because you do this all the time. <laughs> Whereas you identify things and you have the ability to find someone and say, you know, you should do this or not. Just like you sent me an email last week. It's like, Hey, Amy, do this. <laughs> yep. And so I think that also um, the one thing that you do well, that you may not even notice is that um, not only are you a joiner, you're a bring people along. Um, and <laughs> That actually, I got to tell you that that um, means a lot as a, a medical student, as a resident who is sitting around going, I don't have anything to offer. And, you know, to have um, us as leaders look back and say, sure, you do. You know, of mm -hmm. course you do. 
And, you know, really um, sometimes being the vote of confidence that people don't know that they are yet. Um, and, you know, we may, may not actually even see our attributes yet, but if you're a leader, you're also, you're not just looking up yourself, you're looking around saying, well, you can do this too. And why don't you try this? And, you know, really, you know, you were, I think the example of believing in people ahead of time. And so um, your belief in other people, let us believe in ourselves. Um, I wanted to bring you on because you are really the epitome of a leader who is out for the best for everyone, you know, and just all of your words too, of saying that I joined because something needed to be done. And I joined because I could do it. And I joined with the intention of doing something and then knowing that I'm going to bring people along because I know they can do it too. And that exponential effect is really, really how we change medicine. And so that's why you were a very, very obvious choice to come on and talk about leadership um, just because of uh, all the example that you provided for all of us that have been surrounding you. Well, thank you, Amy. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Perfect. When I'll put some links on for the American College of Surgeons and the Association of Women Surgeons. And of course, you know, um, and then the PACS organizations, because really that's how we change and uh, is working in, um, in masses as well and all the groundwork too. And, and just like Dr. Sacrin said before too, uh, working in your local community where a lot of work happens anyway. Um, and that's how you mm -hmm. rise to these ranks is just doing what's in front of you and then doing what's next and then bringing people along. And I think that's how we're going to change medicine. All right, Dr. Copeland, so nice talking with you. Thank you, Amy. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the show and share it with fellow surgeons. Let's show each other what is possible. You can find more information at bosssurgery.com and the Boss Business of Surgery Series Facebook group. Until next time.